Welcome to Part 2 of Iwo Jima, a World War II special presentation from 1001 Stories Podcast Network. This episode, as was the first, is dedicated to all the servicemen who had a part in this very deadly 38-day operation. Marines, Navy, Army Air Force, Seabees, and even UDT teams with respect to early intelligence gathering. In Episode 1, we covered the need for the decision to attack rather than bypass Iwo, that being mainly to remove Japanese radar and landing strips from Iwo, as well as provide landing strips for flak-damaged B-29s returning from bombing runs over Japanese targets. We discussed Day 1, the landings, and the defenses that had been carefully placed by Japanese Commander General Kurabayashi using 16 miles of underground tunnels. Massive guns on rails that could fire at will from Mount Suribachi and then disappear inside. And 21,000 Japanese troops that had no option but to fight to the death trying to take 10 Americans for every Japanese soldier that died. The option being knowing that their families would be made to suffer the shame at home if they failed. You heard and will hear Department of Defense interviews with veterans who served there, written testimony from veterans, and the story of the flags that the Marines placed atop Mount Suribachi, the larger of which was photographed by Joe Rosenthal and soon released to magazines and newspapers all over the world, providing a huge boost for the war effort and a renewal of spirit. In the days after the landings, the Marines expected the usual Japanese bonsai charge during the night, the likes of which we illustrated in our previous episode, Guadalcanal. This had been the standard Japanese final defense strategy in previous battles against enemy ground forces in the Pacific, such as during Guadalcanal and the Battle of Saipan, where Marine PFC Lee Marvin, who would later become a major motion picture star, was hit twice, one bullet causing severe damage to his sciatic nerve. In those attacks for which the Marines were prepared, the majority of the Japanese attackers had been killed and the Japanese strength greatly reduced. However, General Kurabayashi at Iwo Jima had strictly forbidden these human wave attacks by the Japanese infantrymen because he considered them to be futile. The fighting on the beachhead at Iwo Jima was extremely fierce, compounded by numerous defensive positions augmented by artillery pieces. Uh, hand to hand, a lot of it, bayonets, uh, grenades. Uh, it was so rough the terrain around the base of Cervati, boulders and chunks of uh, volcanic rock and and uh, every one of these places it was honeycomb with uh, all types of uh, block houses, uh, fortifications, caves, spider traps, uh, the 28th Marines really took a beat there, trying to take that rock. It was it was continuous firing all the time. And you could hear the rifle fire. You could hear the machine gun fire. You could see the destroyers pulling up to the shore of Serbachi and firing up at an angle like. 30 degrees, 45 degrees in, into that volcano. They had some guns mounted in there and uh, had them on rails with big doors and they'd open up those doors and fire out and then they'd close the doors and run the guns back in the, in the mountain. The last man says, I'm it. He came by, of course, it's noisy. You have to use hand signals mostly. And so, and an a artillery shell has a relatively looping trajectory, whereas a mortar or bomb, they both sound like wherever you're at, it's coming right for you. It's got your number on it. That's what it sounds like. And so when the last man came out, I gave him a few minutes to clear, and I saw a knocked out American tank there. They started running in mortars. So I started running for that tank. 
And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. It might draw far. There's only one person on where they'd waste a shovel, but I ain't going to risk it. I dove for a hole, and it eased up, and then I started for another hole. And uh, they, uh, it was too crowded. And the guys in there said, find another hole. Too many here, you'll go far. Well, I started for this next 16-inch shell hole, and a 16-inch shell makes, even the sand makes a considerable hole with all these guys that I had just covered for. We're in this big hole. And uh, I heard incoming. I heard a mortar come in, so I dove back for this uh, first hole. And they put three in. Boop, 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 just like that. So it's, when the third went out, they had been running in, in series of threes. Because what they do, they'd fire one and cracked on that, and then they fired a second, and you better not be there when that third one came, because it... So something wet hit me inside the face, and I looked, and it was a whole ear off a guy. It just stuck to my face. And I disdainfully chucked, threw it away, and... You know, and, and doing this, I, I, I didn't have any emotion about it. You know, I should have had, and I said, what's wrong with me? I should show emotion. I'm not. I didn't show emotion. I went went to that next hole, and it, there was nothing in that hole bigger than your fist. It, there was probably 15, 16 men destroyed. Well, I ran past her, and I fell to my knees and said the Lord's Prayer. The Marines were ambushed by Japanese troops who often sprang out of tunnels that they had assumed had been cleared out. The tunnels were then hit with flamethrowers again, but the Japanese, expecting that as well as explosive devices, had built in side rooms where they could hide, then re-emerge when the Marines had moved on, attacking them from their rear. At night, the Japanese left their defenses under cover of darkness to attack American foxholes, and U.S. Navy ships fired star shells to try to deny them the cover of darkness. On Iwo Jima, and other Japanese-held islands, Japanese soldiers who knew English were used to harass and or deceive Marines in order to kill them if they could. For instance, they would yell, Corman, Corman, over here, pretending to be a wounded Marine in order to lure in U.S. Navy medical corpsmen attached to Marine infantry companies. One of the technological innovations of the battle, the eight Sherman M4A3R3 medium tanks equipped with a flamethrower, called Ronson or Zippo tanks, proved very effective at clearing Japanese positions above ground. The Shermans were difficult to disable, such that defenders were often compelled to assault them in the open, where they would fall victim to the superior numbers of the Marines. Close air support was initially provided by fighters from escort carriers off the coast. This shifted over to the 15th fighter group, flying P-51 Mustangs, after they arrived on the island on the 6th of March. Similarly, illumination rounds, or flares, which were used to light up the battlefield at night, were initially provided by ships, shifting over later to landing force artillery. Navajo code talkers, as we discussed in part one, were part of the American ground communications, along with walkie-talkies and SCR-610 backpack radio sets. After running out of water, food, and most supplies, the Japanese troops became desperate toward the end of the battle. Kurabayashi, who had argued against Banzai attacks at the start of the battle, realized that defeat was imminent. Marines began to face increasing numbers of nighttime attacks. These were only repelled by a combination of machine gun defensive positions and artillery support. The fact that we suffered 2,089 casualties out of 3,000 men, so testifies to the intention. It was men, men against metal, is what it amounted to. And I've read about the charge of the White Brigade and others in the Civil War, that Civil War battle where 7,000 were killed in 10 minutes. I know exactly where they were coming from. I know what it was about. The fighting was often desperate, and it lasted night and day for weeks, nonstop. Numerous times, the Marines engaged in hand-to-hand -hand fighting to repel the Japanese attacks. With the landing area secure, 
more troops and heavy equipment came ashore, and the invasion proceeded north to capture the airfields and the remainder of the island. On the beaches, Amtraks, unable to do more than uselessly churn the black ash, made no progress up the slopes. Their marine passengers had to dismount at landing and slog forward on foot. Men of the Naval Construction Battalions, the Seabees, braving enemy fire, eventually were able to bulldoze passages up the slopes. This allowed the Marines and equipment to finally make some progress inland and get off the jam-packed beaches. Even so, in virtually every shell hole, there lay at least one dead Marine, it was said. In the first 72 hours of combat, there was one Marine casualty every 45 seconds. The Marines had lost 10% of their attacking forces by the end of day one. When President Roosevelt saw the casualty figures from Iwo Jima on D plus two, he reportedly wept, finding it hard to believe the Marines had lost so many men in just two days of land fighting. Over 4,000 Marines had been wounded and more than 600 were dead. Another 560 were MIA, assumed either captured, unidentified, or blown to bits too small to be identified. As it turned out, only two Marines were captured at Iwo, and they were tortured mercilessly by the Japs. It was no secret during World War II that if you had to be captured, you'd rather be captured by a Nazi soldier than a Japanese soldier. They were ruthless, and they enjoyed torture. By 11.30 hours, some Marines had managed to reach the southern tip of airfield number one, whose possession had been one of the original American objectives for the first day. The Marines endured a fanatical 100-man charge by the Japanese, but were able to keep their toehold on airfield number one as night fell. The first night brought a weird, nightmarish hell, with Mount Suribachi resembling a huge Christmas tree, with cannon and mortar fire, tracers, and flares exploding all around the extinct volcano. When the firing stopped, the Japanese took to what shadows there were beneath the flares and jumped into marine foxholes, detonating their grenades and sometimes landmines that they had strapped to their bodies before they fell. Raising the flag on Iwo Jima is the name of a black and white photograph taken by Joe Rosenthal depicting six Marines from E Company, 2nd Battalion, 28th Marines, raising a U.S. flag atop Mount Suribachi on February 23, 1945, in the second of two flag raisings on that volcano that day. The photograph was extremely popular, being reprinted in thousands of publications. Later, it became the only photograph to win the Pulitzer Prize for Photography in the same year as its publication, and ultimately came to be regarded as one of the most significant and recognizable images of the war and possibly the most reproduced photograph of all time. I remember seeing this, and, and the ships were all blowing their horns, everybody was excited, and you could just see something up there. I couldn't make it out as American flag, of course, I was still on the ship. And uh, they uh, put the bigger flag up, then you, you could make it up pretty much. Uh, Harry the Horse, I forget his name, that was his nickname, he was a lieutenant colonel, gave a little flag to go up there, and the ship said, we want that flag. He said, they ain't getting that flag. That's my flag. So they went over to the LST and got a larger flag. And that was, there was a photographer, a Marine Corps sergeant who was later killed in the campaign. And he, uh, newsreel photographer, he got newsreel filmage of the exact photograph that Joe Rosenthal had in sequence. And it lay dormant for years because all the acclaim was given to this one picture. So his film is just what it just drug out of the archives a few years back. In 1954, the flag-raising picture was later used by Felix de Weldon to sculpt the Marine Corps War Memorial, also known as the Iwo Jima Memorial, located adjacent to Arlington National Cemetery. Three of the six Marines depicted in the picture, Sergeant Michael Strank, Corporal Harlan Block, and Private First Class Franklin Susley were killed in action days after the flag raising. Two of the three surviving flag raisers, Private First Class Rene Gagnon and Private First Class Ira Hayes, together with Navy Corpsman John Bradley, 
became celebrities upon their participation in a war bond selling tour after the battle, at the bequest of President Roosevelt. Two subsequent Marine Corps investigations into the identities of the six men in the photograph, determined in 1946 and 47, that Henry Hansen was misidentified as being Block. Both Marines had died six days after the photo. And in May and June 2016, that Bradley was not in the photograph, and PFC Harold Schultz was. By the morning of February 23rd, Mount Suribachi was effectively cut off above ground from the rest of the island. Navy aircraft dropped napalm to clear brush and discourage Japanese defenders from exiting their tunnels. The Marines knew that the Japanese defenders had an extensive network of below ground defenses by that time, and in spite of its isolation above ground, the volcano was still connected to Japanese soldiers via the tunnel network. They expected a fierce fight for the summit. Two small patrols from two rifle companies, from 2nd Division 28 Marines, were sent up the volcano to reconnoiter routes on the mountain's north face. Popular accounts, embroidered by the press in the aftermath of the release of the photo, had the Marines fighting all the way up to the summit. Although the Marine riflemen expected an ambush, one patrol encountered only small groups of Japanese defenders on top of Suribachi. The majority of the Japanese troops stayed in the tunnel network, only occasionally attacking in small groups, and were soon all assumed killed. The recon patrols made it to the summit and scrambled down again, reporting what they had experienced to the 228 Marine commander, Colonel Chandler Johnson. Johnson then called for a reinforced platoon-sized patrol from E Company to climb Suribachi and seize and occupy the crest. The patrol commander, First Lieutenant Harold Schreier, was handed the battalion's American flag to be raised on top to signal Suribachi's capture, if they reached the summit. Johnson and the Marines anticipated heavy fighting, but the patrol encountered only a small amount of small arms fire on the way up the mountain. Once the top was secured by Schreier and his men, a length of Japanese water pipe was found there among the wreckage, and the American flag was attached to the pipe and then raised and planted on top of Mount Suribachi, and that became the first foreign flag to fly on Japanese soil. Photographs of this first flag-raising scene, taken by Marine photographer Louis R. Lowry, were not released until late 1947. As the first flag went up, Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal had just landed on the beach at the foot of Mount Suribachi and decided that he wanted that flag as a souvenir. Colonel Johnson, the battalion's commander believed that the flag belonged to the 2nd Battalion, 28th Marines, who had captured that section of the island. Johnson said PFC Rene Gagnon, a messenger for E Company, to take a second, larger flag up the volcano to replace the first flag. It was as this larger replacement flag was attached to another heavy pipe and went up that Joe Rosenthal, the AP civilian photographer, who had missed the first flag raising, took the picture raising the flag on Iwo Jima. It was using a huge, bulky, speed graphic camera that used 4x5-inch film carriers. As he was stacking sandbags to secure his camera, the Marines had reached the site and were struggling with a heavy water pipe flagpole which weighed at least 150 pounds. That kind of pole strength was needed for this 56-inch by 96-inch flag, approximately 4 feet by 8 feet which was a large stars and stripes from one of the ships sitting in the waters below. And all of those ships were watching the Marine Patrol as they lifted the pole and flag into place. As mentioned, Rosenthal's picture would earn him the Pulitzer Prize for photography, and the picture would be used by sculptor Felix de Weldon to sculpt the Marine Corps Memorial located near the Arlington National Cemetery and provide the inspiration for the Marine Corps Museum Peak which rises next to I-95 at Quantico in Virginia. 19-year-old Navy pharmacist mate second-class John Doc Bradley from Appleton, Wisconsin, who had assisted with the first flag, had gone up the mountain with the second. His dad had recommended that he join the Navy and become a medical corpsman to have a better chance of returning home in one piece. He was following a platoon just mentioned, consisting of six Marines whose names would enter the history books some sooner, and one many years later, when
when he was at last identified by researchers as one of the six. In the group was Marine PFC Rene Gagnon from Manchester, New Hampshire, 18 years old and carrying a picture of his girlfriend inside the webbing of his helmet liner. Corporal Harlan Block, 18 years old, from Wallaco, Texas, who had joined the Marines one year earlier along with 13 of his high school football team buddies. Sergeant Mike Strank at 24, the old man of the platoon. Private First Class Ira Hayes, a young Pima Indian from River Indian Reservation in Arizona. PFC Harold Schultz and PFC Franklin Susley, just 19 from the hills of Kentucky and, like his fellow Marines, a long way from home. No one knew at that moment that there were still 32 days remaining to the fight at Iwo and that three of those six Marines would never leave Iwo alive. Sergeant Michael Strank, Corporal Harlan Block, and PFC Franklin Susie, as mentioned, were the three who lost their lives at Iwo in the days following the flag raising. Navy Corpsman John Doc Bradley, Renee Gagnon, and Ira Hayes were tapped for a tour of the states to promote war bond sales after the battle and became celebrities. Originally, Marine PFC Henry Hansen, who died at Iwo, was named as one of the flag raisers, but that was actually Harlan Block, who was also killed at Iwo. So that was the first misidentification. And then there was Doc Bradley, mistaken for Harold Schultz. And Bradley took part in the war bond tour and enjoyed celebrity status. He was later identified as not being in the picture, which didn't look good for him. Harold Schultz was finally identified in 2016 after researchers for Clint Eastwood's film Flags of Our Fathers began to look into the real identities more deeply. Schultz was shot and wounded at Iwo March 13th, was evacuated, and earned an honorable discharge, so he survived it. I have found nothing in my research to indicate that he ever questioned why he wasn't asked by the Marines to go to Washington and then join the war bond tour which means that none of the men who were there recognized that he had been one of the six. The chances are likely that he was recuperating from surgery and when he did hear about the war bond tour, decided he would rather stay unknown. He lived until 1995 and no doubt was able to see some likeness to at least his back on the statue and the Rosenthal picture. Also, the guys who raised the pole that day and those crouching with rifles on guard around them probably didn't recount exactly who was in the six who raised it when they were asked later, as they weren't looking at faces. They were just trying to get the flag in place and get off that peak without getting shot or fragged. For many of those guys, and probably Schultz, Iwo was a hell they wanted to gladly forget. It's only natural to ask why Doc Bradley didn't step forward and say, yes, he was there, but no, he wasn't one of the six who raised it. Here's what probably happened. On March 30th, 1945, President Roosevelt ordered that the six flag raisers in Rosenthal's photograph be sent immediately to Washington, D.C. to appear for public morale, then go on a war bond tour. On April 8th, the Marine Corps announced that Gagnon, Hayes, and Bradley were the only three survivors and that Hansen, Susley, and Strank had been killed in action. When you're asked, you follow orders and you don't tell the Marines they screwed up on the names. And Navy Corpsman Doc Bradley was the only guy present for both flag raisings that day. On February 21st, at Iwo, in the thick of the action at the base of Suribachi, Doc Bradley braved heavy enemy fire, which included a pounding mortar barrage and merciless machine gun crossfire to save a wounded Marine and the lives of other Marines trying to save that Marine by running into the open and dragging that Marine to safety, which earned him a silver cross. He also dispatched a Japanese soldier on March 3rd who was charging him with a bayonet and received numerous shrapnel wounds from a mortar round explosion. Bradley's wife later told the press that when he returned home and they got married, he wept in his sleep for four years and kept his K-bar knife in the dresser drawer for protection. He often had flashbacks about his best friend at Iwo, Iggy Ignatowski, who was captured and tortured by Japanese soldiers. Bradley never forgave himself for not being there to save him 
when he was dragged into a cave. The other side of Bradley's story, that of purposely answering statements regarding his being one of the six, needs to be mentioned. Rene Gagnon was the first to report to Washington, and he identified Bradley as one of the six. Bradley was still recovering at Naval Hospital Oakland and was told there that he was one of the six. He didn't deny it at that time. He arrived in Washington April 19th on crutches and interviewed by a lieutenant colonel and again did not set the record straight about who was in the photograph. It's very possible he thought he was because in the midst of all that hell, there's a lot of loss of clarity. The flag flew on Mount Suribachi until it was taken down on March 14th when an American flag was officially raised at Kitano Point at the northern end of the island by orders of the commander of all the troops on Iwo Jima, Lieutenant General Holland Smith, who witnessed the event with Major General Graves B. Erskine, the commander of the 3rd Marine Division and troops of the division. On April 20th, Bradley met Truman at the White House and was shown his assumed position in the picture, which he accepted. Later press conferences did not bring a change of position on Bradley's part. So you decide, was he a hero? Yes, undoubtedly. And if he did remember clearly, you can bet that he regretted not having spoken up earlier. After 1960, he became very reclusive, not wanting to talk to the press. When he finally shared his memories with his family, it isn't written just how much he told them, except that he was, as his son put it, extremely uncomfortable about talking about Iwo, mostly because of the shock of the loss of his friend, Frank Iggy Ignatowski. He only shared that with his son once. He also admitted he had tried hard to block out the memory of everything that happened there. Ira Hayes was a Pima Native American and a United States Marine who was one of the six flag raisers immortalized in that iconic photograph of the flag raising at Iwo. Hayes was an enrolled member of the Gila River Pima Indian Reservation, located in the Penal and Maricopa counties in Arizona. He enlisted in the United States Marine Corps Reserve on August 26, 1942, and after recruit training, volunteered to become a paramarine. He fought at Bougainville and at Iwo Jima. Helping to raise that American flag on Mount Suribachi brought him a tremendous amount of attention, attention he did okay with for a while, but even on the war bond tour, he constantly drank to forget the horrors of war he had seen, and some say his life on the reservation. He wrote, I kept getting hundreds of letters, and people would drive through the reservation, walk up to me and ask, are you the Indian who raised the flag at Iwo Jima? Although he rarely spoke about the flag raising, he did talk about his service in the Marine Corps with great pride. He was also disturbed that Harlan Block was still being misrepresented as Hank Hansen, and that the Corps never recognized his statement that Block, not Hansen, was one of the six. So he had gotten it right with regard to Block. One day in 1948, Hayes walked and hitchhiked 1,300 miles from the Gila River Reservation to Edward Frederick Block Sr.'s farm in Westlaco, Texas, to reveal the truth to Block's family about their son Harlan being in the famous photograph. It was Hayes who, because of his persistence, became instrumental in the eventual solving of the true identity of the second flag raiser of the six in that picture. Harlan's mother was especially grateful to Hayes, telling him that from the moment she saw the picture, she knew it was her son. She took what Hayes had told her and wrote to her congressman. Years later, Hayes was asked to play himself in The Sands of Iwo Jima, the movie, which he did, along with Gagnon and Bradley. Hayes had always thought Bradley was one of the six, so he never questioned it. Not long after that movie, Hayes' drinking got worse, and he was arrested 52 times in various cities. It was undoubtedly made easier by the fact that everyone wanted to buy him a drink. Referring to his alcoholism, he once said, I was sick. I guess I was about ready to crack up thinking about all my buddies. They were better men than me, and they're not coming back, much less back to the White House like me. A reporter at the White House had asked Hayes, how do you like all the pomp and circumstance? Hayes' answer, I don't. On the morning of January 24th, 
1955. Hayes was found dead lying near an abandoned adobe hut near where he lived in Sacatan, Arizona. He had been drinking and playing cards on the reservation with his friends and brothers Vernon and Kenneth. An altercation had ensued between Hayes and a Pima Indian named Henry Satoyan, and the others left them alone to work it out. The coroner said his death was caused by alcoholic poisoning and exposure. But Hayes' brother said that Satoya had killed him. There was no autopsy. He was buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery on February 2, 1955. Ira Hayes was often commemorated in art and film before and after his death. In 1949, as previously mentioned, he portrayed himself raising the flag in the motion picture Sands of Iwo Jima. He was the subject of an article by journalist William Bradford Hewell, which was adapted for the feature film The Outsider in 1961, starring Tony Curtis as Hayes. The movie inspired songwriter Peter Lafarge to write The Ballad of Ira Hayes, which became popular nationwide in 1964 after being recorded by Johnny Cash. In 2006, Hayes was portrayed by Adam Beach in the World War II movie Flags of Our Fathers, directed by Clint Eastwood. As we continue with our story, Mount Suribachi had been captured, but there were still weeks of hard fighting ahead. Despite Japan's loss of Mount Suribachi on the south end of the island, the Japanese still held strong positions on the north end. The rocky terrain vastly favored defense, even more so than Mount Suribachi, which was much easier to hit with naval artillery fire. Coupled with this, the fortifications constructed by Kuribayashi were more impressive on the north end than at the southern end of the island. Kuribayashi had at his disposal eight infantry battalions, a tank regiment, and two artillery and three heavy mortar battalions. There were also about 5,000 gunners and naval infantry. The most arduous task left to the Marines was the overtaking of the Motoyama Plateau with its distinctive Hill 382 and Turkey Knob, and the area in between referred to as the Amphitheater. This formed the basis of what became known as the Meat Grinder. While this was being achieved on the right flank, the left was clearing out Hill 362 with just as much difficulty. The overall objective at this point was to take control of airfield number two in the center of the island. However, every penetration seemed to become a disaster as units were raked from the flanks, chewed up, and sometimes wiped out. Tanks were destroyed by interlocking fire or were hoisted into the air on the spouting fireballs of buried mines. As a result, the fighting bogged down with American casualties piling up. Even capturing these points was not a solution to the problem since a previously secured position could be attacked from the rear by the use of the tunnels and hidden pillboxes. As such, it was said that they could take these heights at will and then regret it. The Marines nevertheless found ways to prevail under the circumstances. It was observed that during bombardments, the Japanese would hide their guns and themselves in the caves only to reappear when the troops would advance and then lay devastating fire on them. The Japanese had over time learned basic American strategy, which was to lay heavy bombardment before an infantry attack. Consequently, General Erskine ordered the 9th Marine Regiment to attack under the cover of darkness with no preliminary barrage. This came to be a resounding success with many Japanese soldiers killed while off guard. This was a key moment in the capture of Hill 362. It held such importance that the Japanese organized a counterattack the following night. Although Kuribayashi had forbidden the suicide charges familiar with other battles in the Pacific, the commander of the area decided on a bonsai charge with the optimistic goal of recapturing Mount Suribachi. On the evening of March 8th, Captain Samaje Inoue and his 1,000 men charged the American lines, inflicting 347 casualties with 90 deaths. The Marines counted 784 dead Japanese soldiers the next day. The same day, elements of the 3rd Marine Division reached the northern coast of the island, splitting Kuribayashi's defenses in two. There was also a kamikaze air attack, the only one of the battle, on the ships anchored at sea, and that happened on February 21st, two days after the initial invasion, which resulted in the sinking of the escort carrier USS Bismarck Sea 
severe damage to the USS Saratoga, which resulted in her being sunk, and slight damage to the escort carrier USS Lunga Point, an LST, and a transport. Although the island was declared secure at 1800 on March 16th, 25 days after the landings, the 5th Marine Division still faced Kurabayashi stronghold in a gorge 640 meters long at the northwestern end of the island. On March 21st, the Marines destroyed the command post in the gorge of the island. However, on the night of March 25th, a 300-man Japanese force launched a final counterattack in the vicinity of Airfield No. 2. Army pilots, Seabees, and Marines of the 5th Pioneer Battalion and 28th Marines fought the Japanese force for up to 90 minutes, suffering heavy casualties with 53 killed and 120 wounded. Two Marines from the 36th Depot Company, an all-African-American unit, received the Bronze Star. First Lieutenant Harry Martin of the 5th Pioneer Battalion was the last Marine to be awarded the Medal of Honor during the battle. Although still a matter of speculation because of conflicting accounts from surviving Japanese veterans, it has been said that Kurabayashi led this final assault, which, unlike the loud bonsai charge of previous battles, was characterized as a silent bonsai attack. If ever proven true, Kurabayashi would have been the highest-ranking Japanese officer to have personally led an attack during World War II. Additionally, this would also be his final act, a departure from the normal practice of the commanding Japanese officers committing seppuku behind the lines while the rest perished in the bonsai charge, as happened during the battles of Saipan and Okinawa. The island of Iwo Jima was officially declared secure at 0900 on March 26th, but still the fighting continued. There were thousands of Japanese still underground, and they weren't going to surrender. Once the island was declared secure, the Army's 147th Infantry Regiment was ostensibly there to act as a garrison force, but they soon found themselves locked in a bitter struggle against thousands of stalwart defenders engaging in a last-ditch guerrilla campaign to harass the Americans. Using well-supplied caves and tunnel systems, the Japanese resisted American advances. For three months, the 147th slogged across the island, using flamethrowers, grenades, and satchel charges to root out the enemy killing some 1,602 Japanese soldiers in small unit actions. Of between 20,530 and 21,060 Japanese defenders entrenched on the island, from 17,845 to 18,375 died, either from fighting or by ritual suicide. Only 216 were captured during the course of the battle. After Iwo Jima, it was estimated there were no more than 300 Japanese left alive in the island's warren of caves and tunnels. But in fact, there were close to 3,000 still alive. The Japanese Bushido Code of Honor, coupled with effective propaganda which portrayed American GIs as ruthless animals, prevented surrender for many Japanese soldiers. Those who could not bring themselves to commit suicide hid in the caves during the day and came out at night to prowl for provisions. Some did eventually surrender and were surprised that the Americans often received them not with torture, but with compassion, offering water, cigarettes, alcohol, or coffee. The last of these holdouts on the island, two of Lieutenant Toshihiko Ono's men, Yamakagi Kofuku and Matsudu Linsoki, lasted four years without being caught and finally surrendered on January 6, 1949. Though ultimately victorious, the American victory at Iwo had been a costly one. According to the official Navy Department Library website, the 36-day Iwo Jima assault resulted in more than 26,000 American casualties, including 6,800 dead. By comparison, a much larger scale 82-day Battle of Okinawa, lasting from early April until mid-June of 1945, involving five U.S. Army and two Marine Corps divisions, resulted in over 62,000 U.S. casualties, of whom over 12,000 were killed or missing. Two U.S. Marines were captured, one of them, Frank Ignatowski, Doc Bradley's friend, during the battle, and those two did not survive. The USS Bismarck Sea was also lost, and the Yorktown, 
which would become the last U.S. aircraft carrier sunk in World War II. In hindsight, given the number of casualties, the necessity and long-term significance of the island's capture to the outcome of the war became a contentious issue and still remains disputed to this day. The Marines who suffered the actual casualties were not consulted in the planning of the operation. As early as April 1945, retired Chief of Naval Operations William V. Pratt stated in Newsweek magazine that considering the expenditure of manpower to acquire a small, godforsaken island, useless to the Army as a staging base and useless to the Navy as a fleet base, one wonders if the same sort of air base could not have been reached by acquiring other strategic localities at a lower cost. The Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration awarded by the United States government. It's bestowed on a member of the United States Armed Forces who distinguishes himself by conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while engaged in an action against an enemy of the United States. Because of its nature, the medal is commonly awarded posthumously. Since its creation during the American Civil War, it has been presented 3,464 times at last check. During the Battle of Iwo Jima, 22 medals were presented to Marines and five were presented to sailors attached to Marine infantry units. 22 medals of honor comprise 28% of the 82 awarded to Marines in World War II. As of 2016, Herschel W. Williams, Marine Corps, is the only living Medal of Honor recipient from the Battle of Iwo Jima. Williams, who was aged 93 in 2016, at last check, was one of seven living Medal of Honor recipients of World War II, those seven consisting of five soldiers and two Marines. The United States Navy has commissioned two ships with the name USS Iwo Jima. On February 19, 1985, the 40th anniversary of the landings on Iwo Jima, an event called Reunion of Honor was held, and the event has been held annually since 2002. The veterans of both sides who fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima attended the event. The place was the invasion beach where U.S. forces landed. A memorial on which inscriptions were engraved by both sides was built at the center of the meeting place. The Japanese attended at the mountainside, where the Japanese inscription was carved, and Americans attended at the shoreside, where the English inscription was carved. After unveiling and offering of flowers were made, the representatives of both countries approached the memorial. Upon meeting, they shook hands. Iwo Jima Day is observed annually on 19th of February in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with a ceremony at the State House. The Japanese government continues to search for and retrieve the remains of Japanese military personnel who were killed during the battle. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. My name is Jerry Yellen. I was a captain in the Army Air Corps, uh, and I flew P-51s off of Iwo Jima, uh, starting on March 7, 1945, when the Marines took uh, enough land around the first dirt airstrip. I made 19 flights over Japan starting on April 7th, eight hours in a P-51. And I flew the first mission escorting B-29s and on August 14th, 1945, I flew the very last combat mission of World War II. And my wingman, Phil Schlomberg from Brooklyn, New York, 19 years old, was killed on that day. So he was the last man killed in combat in World War II. What we were learned about the Japanese or what they learned about us and that war is an atrocity that uh, in 1988 my youngest son married the daughter of a Japanese kamikaze pilot which took me from hatred to love of family. I have three Japanese grandchildren. Um, I'd like their contemporaries to know that my grandchildren's grandchildren, grandparents served their countries with honor no matter what we were learned about the Japanese or what they learned about us and that war is an atrocity, that uh, evil has to be wiped out. We are not what we believe. We are all human beings, exactly the same. Uh, and there's evil in the world today, and we have to fight that evil to make sure that there's freedom for free-loving people in our world. And you guys in the Marines, the Navy, Air Force, 
are the ones with that responsibility, and I know you fulfill it well. It means that my cycle of life is near its end. That's what it means to me. And I'm, I'm here willingly and happily uh, as a last fond memory of this island where I flew with 16 guys that didn't come back, and I'm representing them here. I'm the only guy who was a pilot who's on the island now who was a pilot in World War II. So I'm representing a lot of people, and I hope I'm doing it humbly and doing it correctly because we're leaving this world rapidly. And soon, years, there'll be nobody left for World War II. question of why me? Why did I survive when the guy right beside me didn't? Why was I selected to do a particular job that eventually resulted in my receiving the nation's highest award? When I know there were others that did as much and maybe more and sacrificed more than I did. It took me a long time to actually accept that I'm really entitled to this Medal of Honor that I possess. And I have said since the very inception, as soon as I could rationalize what was going on, it does not belong to me. Two of those Marines who were protecting me died, so they gave up. They gave all they had and so much more than I did. And yet, I'm the guy that's wearing the medal. And I have said since the inception, I am just the caretaker of it. It belongs to them, it doesn't belong to me. So when I wear it, I don't wear it for what I did. I wear it for what they did. I'm quite often asked, what was your most effective weapon on Iwo Jima? Flamethrower, flame tanks, mortars, machine guns, individual rifle? My answer is none of the above. My most effective weapon was the individual Marine. Brave that he was, willing to take risks, knew what he was up against, and charged ahead anyway. I hope that from the Marine Corps War Memorial, when young people see that, they will recognize that those guys in that memorial statue represented the other 70 plus thousand Marines, sailors and others who are on that island. They have a great life, but somebody paid a high price so you could have what you have today. And the time's going to come and you may have to contribute your share to ensure that your children have what you have today, and that's freedom. And if we don't have freedom, the rest of it isn't gonna count. Things just got right, you know. We didn't even hear the truck engine going. And the truck, we were signaling in the truck, and I happened to look up. And that's when I saw a bunch of guys up there. Now this is at the top of Sarabachi. And, uh, you know, it was just odd, you know what I'm saying? I wonder what they're doing up there, you know? I'm thinking the mountain's secured, you know? So I'm wondering, what are they doing up there? And then as this was going through my mind, all of a sudden I saw the flag unfurl. And really, to this day, it was, it was a, quite a sight to see old glory you know, on top of Sarabachi. And, and when I saw the flag go up, it was quiet. Not real quiet, but diminished. Was, as we flag went out, which we found out later, it was the second flag that was put up and all of, all of that. But it was the greatest feeling that I felt as an American. I did a little... <clears throat> Emotional when I think of it, but meant so much. This was so glorious.
This is your 1001 Stories host, John Hagedorn. Something new is coming your way. So set your podcast dials to today's History Minute, everywhere good podcasts are found. Early every morning, we'll offer a fun, upbeat look at why today is special, usually honoring a holiday or observance and telling one quick and often quirky story about this day in history and why today is special, a story that you can enjoy with your morning coffee. We do all of this in just a few short minutes. Our goal, to lend you a friendly morning voice, a reason to celebrate your day, and maybe an excuse to buy a card for someone or have a special dinner. Why am I doing this? I sort of lost track of time the past few years, and I realized that my goal should be to make every day a special day. There's always something to be grateful for or to celebrate. So instead of tying a string around my finger as a reminder, I thought I'd put my podcast energies to work and create Today's History Minute. You can subscribe now to Today's History Minute. That's Today's without the apostrophe. Today's History Minute, wherever good podcasts are found. And if it hasn't reached yours yet, you can go to our website, todayshistoryminute.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy our new show. We welcome new listeners using the AnyPod Skill app with Amazon's Alexa. I know we're coming in loud and clear there, as well as at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and wherever great podcasts are found. It's great to have all of you listening out there. Meanwhile, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.